it is incredible because we live in a time when the world is going through a churn uh, of anti-racism protests. People are angry about colonialism. They are toppling statues of colonizers right here in San Francisco. Um, you know, they attacked Winston Churchill's statue. They top, toppled, you know, Father Junipero Serra's, you know, statue. So there's a lot of anger about colonialism and about liberating colonized people, about fighting racism and bigotry. And yet, the same media, the same intellectual and cultural world, which is professing to be uh, fighting colonialism, uh, has been incredibly silent and even complicit in the perpetuation of this phenomenon many of us are calling Hinduphobia. And uh, I think we are at a very intense time, historically, politically, spiritually, for lack of a better word. So what I thought I would do today is uh, uh, try and address the question of Hinduphobia from a social scientific perspective, from the perspective of my subject, which is media studies. Three broad areas I'm going to talk about today. First, the term Hinduphobia itself and its career so far. Second, a brief history of the field of media studies. And third, the most important part, a media studies approach to Hinduphobia. So let's start with this term Hinduphobia. So what is Hinduphobia? Well, I guess uh, a lot of us are using it, but then what it exactly is, different people may have different answers. Some people think it's not real. And even among the people who think it's real, and this is a key point I want us to think about, there are many people who don't like the name. There are people who say, yes, there is some kind of a strong anti-Hindu bias or prejudice in the world. Uh, it shows in our history, our temples were destroyed. Um, you know, there's hate in, you know, so many religious ideologies. But then I don't know if Hindu phobia is the right word because, you know, phobia implies fear and people are not afraid of us, right? So that is one argument against the term. Another argument is it sounds like the term Islamophobia. And then uh, people don't like that term. Um, and then yet another argument that's made particularly by people who are somewhat right-leaning or right-wing identifying in India is, you know, we don't believe in oppression Olympics, as they call it. Uh, so they think that it's somehow demeaning to talk about any kind of uh, historic oppression. Um, and, um, you know, so we just believe in hard work. And I mean, I just threw in Ayn Rand as a little joke there um, because I, there's, you know, I feel like sometimes people believe this right-wing ideology entirely. And frankly, in, in, in Indian civilization, in our philosophy, both these terms, right-wing, left-wing, you know, don't really mean mu that much. So just making the distinction at the outset that uh, I'm not a big fan of, you know, the right-wing approach to um, all these issues. Uh, but anyway, so people have disagreements with the word. But broadly, we can start with a working understanding of its meaning. And that working understanding basically is that it's a term we use to name some kind of historically loaded hatred or prejudice or even violence against Hindus. Okay, So uh, that the word is being used. It refers to something, I think, which is fairly real. Now, let's try and flesh this idea out a little more before we get into uh, how we might look at it in the social sciences and in my field in particular. So one point I want to make right at the outset is that the term Hindu phobia doesn't have much 
or any legitimacy, frankly, in mainstream discourses. Okay. It has a fair amount of currency in everyday conversations, you know, like forums like um, ours on, on the internet and WhatsApp, in Twitter, Facebook, etc. But if you look at institutional discourses, so if you look at law, if you look at HR, human resources policies, if you look at, uh, um, you know, the, educa- the literature and various scientific journals, you will find that this term doesn't exist. People don't really believe it exists. And a very uncanny example, a reminder of this that, you know, came to me as I was typing up this presentation. So notice how the word Hindu phobia is automatically underscored in this computer program. You see the little dotted line there. Okay. Now in the same sentence, you see Islamophobia, homophobia, all these words are not highlighted by the computer program. So whoever is designing software, all these computer platforms, you know, they are also following these discourses, these rules that are, that are being made in the social science disciplines of academia and are being fought for by various communities. So Islamophobia, whether you and I personally think it's you know, real or not real, the world today thinks it's real and it's affecting you. Your computer will honor that term and won't underscore it saying there's no such word. Okay. And it's real in uh, HR departments. It's real in so many ways. In the phobia, uh, you know, we have so many Indians working in software, but then that's who we are. We are mostly just workers. Um, we don't have the kind of magical power and rulership that sometimes we think we have because we have a few Indian CEOs in Silicon Valley. We are completely unrepresented or even counter-represented. So just a small example I wanted to highlight. So that is the power of discourse. You know, when, when a term is accepted in institutional discourses, it becomes real. The world has to follow it as if it's real. When a term is seen as illegitimate, you know, we have to fight to make it real. That's, uh, you know, where we are. Um, so most institutions today might see you know, racism, casteism, all these things as very real. They don't see Hindu phobia as real. And they may even discredit. They may even say that Hindutva is like a right-wing conspiracy theory and you know, um, it's coming from people who hate minorities. They, they will completely deny any validity to the pain we face or you know, the objective reasons we have for it. To give us a reality check, you know, because... Frequently, you know, I find on internet a lot of Hindus who are active on the internet will, you know, say things like, "Oh, yeah, the left liberals are getting scared. They, you know, they're retreating because Hindus are getting more assertive, and uh, you know, we are fighting back and all these things." You know, which sounds exciting, but if you, I'm going to throw some cold water on it and give us some reality checks here, because if you look at it objectively, and here's a very simple way to look at it objectively, I just Googled each of these words, you know, which are all used to describe forms of bias or oppression or uh, violence, you know, or systemic oppression, as it's often called in the social sciences today. Uh, And you can see that the term Hindu phobia really doesn't have as vast a presence uh, in the public conversation today 
as some of these other terms, right? You have terms like, you know, transphobia, Islamophobia, sexism, racism, you know, in the tens or even hundreds of millions of hits, because these are terms that a lot of people have put energy into um, circulating, you know, and talking about. Um, so we, we are, you know, at a very, very, you know, in, inconsequential uh phase of, of, this, of this term's usage. Now, if you look a little more closely at the institutional or discursive career of Hinduphobia, that is, if you look at how much bearing this term has in the scholarly literature, here too we find that the term Hinduphobia is appallingly low. Now, if you were to Google Hindutva or Hindu nationalism or you know, Hindu extremism, I'm sure you would find thousands of results uh, because that's what scholars in my field are mostly working on. That's what they think is the important concern. Um, Hindu phobia is largely deemed to be non-existent. And again, compare that. I mean, one argument is, oh, yeah, well, we started talking about this only a few years ago because India was under Congress rule. Uh, you know, it's only now in the last few years people are speaking up, you know, if that argument really doesn't make that much sense, because if you look at a term like transphobia, it is so new, it's hardly 10 or 15 years old. And even Islamophobia, frankly, is, you know, very, very recent term. Uh, but they've all boomed in universities because there are professors teaching classes on it. Uh, there are conferences being held. So it's been validated uh, very, very quickly and effectively. And of course, uh, terms like anti-Semitism, sexism have an even longer career. But the important thing, again, is people have fought in so many ways for each of these terms to uh, become treated as reality in the world. And we are, again, you know, nowhere in the picture. So even if you look at these hundred or so, you know, hits that come up when you Google the term Hinduphobia, um, um, You'll find there's very few publications actually in scholarly books or journals and very few articles or books by credential scholars. Okay? At most, we have a, a few uh, publications by religion scholars, and that has its own peculiarities. But we don't really have people talking about Hinduphobia in, say, um, you know, law or media studies or sociology or anthropology or criminology or uh, management you know, all the different fields, because now every field in the world today studies and talks about sexism and racism. So that's how much of a reality it's considered. Hinduphobia, no field is really even talking about it yet. Okay. And one more thing to remember, even some, even, even the few dozen results that come up, many of them are not even talking about the word Hinduphobia sympathetically. They just mention it to dismiss it. So you know, we are in a very, very weak situation as far as, you know, our ability to self-represent our pain goes. So um, what is it that I hope we will do? We'll, we'll accomplish with this talk and, and in the future. So I've sort of laid it out, you know, right now, because most of the time we hear the word, you know, Hindu phobia, it's being circulated in certain sites, right? Social media, uh, blogs, and sometimes some authors do a good job uh, talking about it. Sometimes people just throw that word out there and hope it sticks. Um, you know, 
but anyway, it's it's not in any site which is consequential. Okay, so what do I mean by consequential sites, or I mean institutions, right? So where social science is produced, like university classes, conferences, books, you know, etc. And then if you look at the attitude of the people using the term, and I know many of us are active on social media. There's a lot of enthusiastic voices there. People want to fight Hinduphobia on social media. You know, not all of us are in the social sciences. I, I recognize that, but I hope, you know, by looking at this, we can figure out exactly where we are and what we can do better. Now, in, in, in social media, uh, a lot of people who use the term Hinduphobia use it in a reactive way, almost in a consumerist way. So that word comes to you. You see that word, somebody else is using it, somebody you follow is popular, is a social media star. You know, they're using Hinduphobe. They're using, quote-unquote, libtard, or left liberal, uh, what is the other one, urban axle, whatever. So these are all, you know, words that have been coined on social media, and people pick it up and just start throwing it here and there. Uh, sometimes they have a minor effect. Sometimes, most times, you know, they don't go anywhere. Anyway, so that is the realm again of social media. But if you're in the social sciences, if you're trying to push an idea like racism or sexism or Hinduphobia there, uh, you need to be productive about it, not reactive, and you need to locate it in existing research literature. You have to know the literature of a field and then say, hey, this is why I'm breaking from it, or this is how Hinduphobia needs to be added to it. Then in terms of the arguments, again, on social media, one of the things I find uh, people tend to focus too much on the intent. You know, it's on individuals like, oh, that person is urban axle, that person is a you know, left liberal, you know. So people are always trying to diagnose people's intention. So on social media, it's entertaining. But again, in reality, if you are trying to do this in, in the social sciences, you can't ever really talk about intent. You know, you have to talk about the evidence that's appropriate to your field of study. So if you want to say there is uh, Hinduphobia in history textbooks, you can't say, oh, yeah, Congress government, you know, was Congressy or something like that. You know, in academia, you have to show the evidence, you know, dig out all the textbooks, uh, list everything, analyze it objectively. So that's how it works. Um, and in terms of how even the causes of Hinduphobia is analyzed, and this is a key difference, um, in, in social media, people tend to focus mainly on uh, again, on groups, the political parties or certain religions. And uh, uh, there may be some truth to it, but unfortunately, this often makes it look like a, just a conspiracy theory. Um, now, if you were doing this in the social sciences, you would see Hinduphobia in relation to concepts and of social political phenomena that others have already talked about, like imperialism, colonialism, racism, etc. So again, that is a key distinction. And finally, what are the differences in the outcomes? In social media, just given the nature of, you know, our addictions to phones and reacting immediately, um, our reactions tend to be ephemeral. You know, we rarely have a lasting impact. And what we look for usually is like a gotcha reply, or as they say in America, or befitting reply, as we say in India. So, you know, there's uh, always this uh, instant, instant outburst uh, bias. Whereas if you're doing it from a social science point of view, you want to look at long-term change, institutional change. These are the challenges uh, you know, ahead. And what are some of the constraints we have today uh, in terms of the 
this idea of Hindu phobia not really going as far as it should have, considering that Hindus are a people of color, we're a formerly colonized people, you know, the, the, all the liberals of the world should love us and, you know, say you guys are the heroes of the global resistance against uh, colonialism, but instead, you know, they call us fascists. What has gone wrong with the liberals? So anyway, so there are two problems. One I'll call the academic Maya Sabha. Okay, that's the name of a chapter in my book, Rearming Hinduism. And basically, this refers to sort of the ideologies and paradigms in the social sciences, um, you know, which have been really, really um, used to, you know, disenfranchise us, discredit us. Um, whereas most other communities, you know, Muslims, Arabs, uh, people of color, blacks, women, Jews, everybody sort of, you know, stormed the social sciences, you know, and humanities since the 60s. And they've all got their own departments. They've got their own fields of study. They have their voice. Uh, unfortunately, we don't really have that voice as Hindus or even as Indians, because the most we have now is this idea called South Asia, which I'll talk about a little later today as well. So the academic problem is one, but there's another problem, which I frankly did not even realize uh, a few years ago. When I wrote Rearming Hinduism, I was writing almost entirely from my experiences within the academy. I had very little direct um, experience with Hindu organizations or you know, the uh, many different people in the community, either independent or part of some political group, you know, trying to do something. And so the last three or four years, you know, I've come to the uh, conclusion that a reality check is necessary, uh, that, you know, we have, while we have a lot of groups claiming to be Hindu advocacy groups, uh, they've had almost no traction in terms of um, make, making a change in academia or in media or any institution that matters. And that is appalling because, you know, any community which claims to have advocacy groups, um, which also claims that, um, you know, um, the party they like is winning elections. Uh, you know, there's an appalling reality that there's no change in, in the thinking in any mainstream institution, um, particularly in, in, in uh, academia. So I want to talk a little bit about that as well. And just make the distinction that, you know, a lot of our energy has sort of been trapped into social media where there's a lot of noise um, and unfortunately a lot of narcissism there. Uh, and that's sort of where a lot of the so-called advocacy is sort of stuck in because it has not paid attention to social science research. And that is something I must emphasize because every community in America, which has a voice today politically or, you know, or in, uh, culturally, made use of social science research. Okay. So, um, yeah, this was actually an article I saw a couple of days ago, which made me realize that this advocacy um, approach is really backfiring. I know it's a very strange headline, uh, but it's by the journalist Chitra Subramanian, and she says, there's no Hindu phobia. That's the argument. She's responding to Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbat's you know, uh, statement a few months ago that, about the Hindu phobia she has faced. And that actually, when she said it, it really made a lot of people in America, people in the progressive independent uh, circles, uh, realize that uh, what many of the so-called progressives in America are phonies, that many of the so-called left liberals in America are actually right-wingers, you know, by American terminology. They're intolerant, they're racist, they just hate Hindus. 
but anyway, so Tulsi Gabbard managed to bring that out. But this article is interesting because the author basically argues that there's no Hindu phobia and Hindu phobia is just uh, uh, the product of a political lobby. Okay. And I realized this is actually, there is some truth to her, that part of her criticism because uh, in the universities today, nobody is convinced that Hindu phobia is real because they don't think of poor millions, hundreds and millions of poor, struggling Hindu farmers, Hindu villagers, Hindus from so-called, you know, um, you know, uh, lower castes. They don't think of Hindu women facing, you know, all sorts of problems from, you know, grooming and uh, assault. I mean, so many problems which we are aware of. The university is not aware of because when they hear the word Hindu phobia, they think of uh, a small group of very wealthy, successful um, Hindu immigrants going to Washington and saying, uh, look, we are so rich. We are so good in studies. We win the spelling bees. Why are you not uh, giving us good press? That's how it's coming across. And unfortunately, that is the argument that is being used to uh, normalize Hindu phobia today, right? They say that Hindus are very rich. So why are you complaining? You know, racism is real because many blacks are poor, uh, but Hindu phobia is not real because you Hindus in America are rich. So that is an argument that is backfiring. So um, just to give you an example, so I wanted to, you know, again, look at some actual evidence over here. Um, to ask the question, have advocacy groups in the U.S., because everybody's starting advocacy groups now, you know, and I've just taken three as a random um, sample. Um, and uh, this seems to be the main approach in the Hindu community. Okay. Now, if you look at what they pr actually prioritize, if you look at their websites and accomplishments and things, you'll find that the concept of Hindu phobia, researching it, in a professional manner, fighting it, activism against it is virtually non-existent. Okay, what are their priorities? Um, here's one. Um, this group has been there for almost 20 years. It's probably the most well-known one in the U.S. Um, the Hindu Student Council, which is more oriented to students. So you can again see that word there. You know, advocacy, empower, empowerment, and uh, if you look at their mission, it's about learning about Hindu heritage. Uh, their vision, development of an integrated personality, spiritual and cultural treasures. Um, the, another group which started earlier this year. Um, again, you see youth, and you know, there's this interesting ideas and you know, interest, good intent. Obviously, I have no squabbles with that. But if you actually break it down and see what they're looking for, one th goal seems to dominate, and that is this idea that they should be producing leaders of the community and something called the confident Hindu. Okay. So that is a very strange approach. I mean, where the whole priority is on personality development. Okay. So if that is a priority, they shouldn't be really calling themselves advocacy. Okay. Um, it could be, this is also fine, but uh, you know, th those are two different things. Um, so what do these groups do? You know, they're concerned about transmitting Hindu heritage to their children. They're concerned about, you know, they, in, in effect, they function like socialization networks, you know, like we have Tamil Sangam, Telugu uh, Association, Bengali Association. There's also like Hindu associations. 
where people get together socially on weekends, you know, we are immigrants in a different country. And uh, a little bit of talk about, you know, textbooks and politics and media, but hardly enough. And another problem also is this model minority approach. Okay, uh, There's somehow a, a perception in the community here that uh, because we are s- supposedly seen as a model minority, uh, you know, we don't do terrorism, we don't do riots, uh, we just do good jobs, people are going to be nice to us and people shouldn't uh, say bad things about us in the media. Unfortunately, that is really you know, counterproductive, you know, because the, um, this is, again, the very argument that's being used to say um, you can't complain about Hindu phobia because, you know, Hindus are, um, are successful, you know. So, and, and, and a lot of Hindu ch- children themselves, you know, get angry with their parents and say, like, you, you're racist towards blacks, you know, how can you uh, say all these things? So that's the generational issue is a much deeper one, but you know I'll just briefly mention it here. And of course, again, lack of scholarly tools and investment in research uh, to really do something called advocacy the way other groups have done it. So this is a flow chart I wanted to mention. You know, so if one really wants to see change, uh, this is sort of how it has happened for various other groups and issues. Um, so. Each of these terms, which today you see millions of hits on the internet, thousands of scholarly articles, millions of dollars invested in you know, uh, promoting these ideas, um, they all start in universities. There's solid research done on them. And then they're also backed up by solid activism, whether it's civil rights in the 60s, the free speech movement in Berkeley, uh, or more recently, even the Uh, BLM movement, I mean, whatever the politics and the violent fringes aside, uh, all these ideas have become real. They have consequences. You know, you could lose your job if you say something sexist or racist because African-Americans, women, they've gone out on the street and they've been doing it for 50 years. They've faced police dogs. They've faced police brutality to fight for their rights. And our community uh, may not have to do face that much violence, but it has to at least face the inconvenience of going out on the street. And we are not doing that over here. That is how they've changed things. So if we want to really bring about a change, you know, what we need is not just Twitter talk that, you know, a party we liked won the election or left liberals are getting scared and all these palliative measures, which don't mean anything. We need to make anti-Hindu phobia a force. And for that, we need activism, we need protests, we need people on the street ready to show up outside, you know, Netflix or Disney or uh, NDTV or whoever. I mean, don't be violent, don't break the law if you don't want to. But in a free country, we have the right to stare a a hateful person in the eye and say, look, what you're doing is wrong. I mean, even Gandhi today, who a lot of Hindus are upset with, he had the courage to starve himself and put his body on the line. And we have uh, internet anti-Gandhis, you know, today boasting about how, you know, their Hindus are becoming confident. No, you know. So we need research, we need activism. Okay. So I wanted to give one example of what uh, professional advocacy uh, high-end, you know, really looks like. This is a movie that has uh, just come out on Netflix. It's called The Social Dilemma. It's a documentary about 
the big IT companies, you know, Google and Facebook and uh, some many concerns about that. So they, the people who made this movie have this outfit now called Center for Humane Technology. And like anything with the word humane, I'm a little suspicious, like humane slaughter or humane, um, you know, a beef or whatever they call it. It, it. I mean, at one level, I think this is the Silicon Valley giants sort of trying to uh, cover their tracks and offer some measure of, uh, um, you know, accountability and say, look, we know we hear your concerns about privacy, etc. But what is interesting, and the reason I showed this, is the amount of attention the site pays to research in psychology and sociology and politics. Okay, So they have a list of different kinds of harm that is being done by social media addiction, by Google, by Facebook, etc. Right? And um, for each of these categories, like impact on attention, look at that, they cite a peer-reviewed journal source. So this is advocacy. This is, you know, real stuff because they're connecting academia into people's lives and they have the money. They'll send people to schools, um, you know, educate uh, school children. And so there's an enormous amount of uh, investment that different groups go into getting their, you know, message out. And we haven't done that for anti-Hindu phobia till now. Academic work on Hindu phobia so far. Um, So... I wanted to give you a quick example of, uh, you know, the little work, result, the few results we find. Digital Hinduism has a wonderful chapter on Hindu phobia and right-wing Christian uh, websites uh, by Sachi Edwards. Um, and then this book below, Ethics, Ethnocentrism, um, is, has been published just this month. I have a chapter in there on how to study Hindu phobia in media, and that is basically what my talk today is sort of based on as well. So these two books are an example of the word Hindu phobia showing up in scholarly literature. But then again, here you can see these scholars are arguing that it's not real. Okay. So this is the dominant paradigm. Um, so let's get quickly into this definition of Hindu phobia as well. And then I'll go on to the media part. I'm sure you're looking for examples. Um, so this is one scholarly source which defines Hindu phobia by Professor Jeffrey Long, as you can probably sense, you know, has taken a very, very shy approach to defining this concept. You know, it's kind of like uh, uh, sometimes it can, uh, sometimes Hindu phobia is real, sometimes it's in the eye of the beholder, it's very controversial. And he gets into this, again, this advocacy Maya Sabha trap, right? So he kind of says the term was coined and popularized by, you know, advocacy groups and uh, non-academic uh, writers and so on. Um, I mean, at least, not, you know, writers who are not from the academy. Uh, now, popularized would be a fair description, but he says, actually says coined. And uh, now, this is one of the reasons why the word Hinduphobia has been discredited and attacked so viciously in academia the last 10 years, because... Uh, even scholars like Long uh, sort of say that this has been, you know, an advocacy group came up with it. Now, the reality actually is that the term Hindu phobia was not coined in the 1990s by any advocacy group or Hindu community leader. This term has been in use since 1883. By the way, I want to draw your attention to this beautiful image. Look at the Om resisting, fighting back. That is Hindu human rights 
you know, they're a very, very, you know, fierce and honest and smart uh, anti-Hindu phobia group based in London. So uh, a scholar named Sarah Gates, who's doing a PhD in uh, cultural studies, um, did the research and found out that the term Hindu phobia has been in use for, well, one, two, three centuries now. Um, and it's just that we somehow never paid attention to it. Um, and of course, she has a nice working definition. It's a modern term for an ancient practice. Um, now, here's a key point I just want to mention. Why is this finding important? This is not to deny credit to anyone who has popularized the term. But the biggest argument that the academic establishment has been making against this term is that Hinduphobia is an invention of the BJP and other political groups, right? And when you look at this fact, you can see that this word, you know, was in use before there was a BJP or even before there was RSS for that matter. So, you know, people were talking about it in the context of actual anti-Hindu hatred in colonial times. 1883, uh, an English newspaper, 1914, an American uh, student newspaper, uh, somebody's talking about, you know, the anti-Hindu, anti-immigrant, um, you know, rhetoric at that time in America, uh, which would later culminate in this horrible book called Mother India in the 1920s by Kathleen Mayo, which basically was a eugenics, racist, religious supremacist argument, and which actually led to an immigration ban. From the 1920s till 1965, Indians could not immigrate there, Indians and most other people of color. So uh, anyway, so we are now in a time when a lot of these arguments are being made again. Uh, now, here's the best part of this article. Uh, Sarah found that even a great person like Sar uh, Sardar Patel used the term Hinduphobia in a speech about Churchill in 1948. Okay? So this term has a very long and rich history. We just have to um, you know, stop shying away from using it um, and uh, not handicap ourselves with you know, advocacy, Maya Sabha. Uh, so the Hindu Human Rights Group has a great definition, um, you know, covers so many angles. This is the power of street activists. You know, they cover the micro and macro picture in this talk, which is, you know, a media studies definition of Hindu phobia, right? Because media studies obviously has uh, a lot of research on sexism in the media, racism in the media, Islamophobia in the media. Um, and, uh, how do we do this very valid and important work in my field? Uh, so we, so you know, media can be confronted with the evidence, and um, you know, media professionals uh, will start to change. You know, uh, at some level at least, because many idealistic people do go into you know journalism and arts as well. You know, uh, and it's sad that most of them fail to get a connection with the Hindu community or the Hindu cause, and then they end up going over to the other side, which is way cooler. Um, anyway, so these are some of the literatures like on colonialism, on racism, and all of which, you know, sort of are pertinent here. What does a media studies perspective look like? So I want to talk broadly about this field, the origin of this field. So showing you two memorable movie posters. Uh, the field began around the 1920s. And of course, uh, that's Charlie Chaplin, Modern Times. And this other picture is sort of the future of technology, virtual reality, gaming, uh, exploitation, uh, all these issues. 
So the earliest research on media began in the 1920s. And the context of that, again, is captured so nicely in this Modern Times poster. You see this, you know, you know helpless, um, but, you know, good-spirited human being standing there. And he's dwarfed by these giant impersonal machines and those chimneys spewing smoke. And that was society. In the 1920s, people were frightened about this new way of life that had quickly taken over the West, the Industrial Revolution, you know, the destruction of traditional, uh, you know, village life, um, the horrible slaughter of World War I, exploitation of labor in the factories. So many issues were going on. And Charlie Chaplin made a beautiful movie about it in modern times as well. If you look more specifically at where this concern about um, you know, me- media studies has come from. First, the 1920s is also the time that the social sciences um, sort of came into academia, right? The sciences and technology were engineering were booming. Social science was an attempt to sort of replicate the methods of science, uh, objective study and measurement in, in the study of human behavior. So it feels like psychology and sociology began to proliferate. Um, you know, the there are obviously limits to how much you can try to do something called social science or human sciences. Uh, sometimes social sciences were useful. They helped shape, you know, housing policies, health policies, but then they were also very, very racist. People gathered, you know, all kinds of spurious data to argue about, you know, racial inferiority and keep out immigrant groups, you know, those kind of things. Uh, the big phenomena which concerned scholars was this term called mass society. You know, again, just think of the Charlie Chaplin picture. So world is changing and then the human being is isolated, exploited. And there's all these new technologies of communication coming in like cinema and radio and novels. And what is going on? You know, what's it doing to people? So that was sort of the concern. And specifically, the single biggest driver of media research and even media technologies, frankly, was the U.S. military. Um, after the end of World War I, the military was convinced that propaganda was a very powerful instrument, that communication was a powerful tool. Uh, so they began to support research on how communication could be used for propaganda and counter-propaganda. Um, and I use the term military-industrial communications complex because that is a reality in America that many scholars talk about. This is, of course, the famous Uncle Sam Wants You recruitment poster. So starting in the 20s, you see this huge investment in using communication to uh, basically fulfill America's war economy uh, needs and everything else is secondary to that. But on the good side, scholars emerge. They start doing research on uh, a lot of interesting issues. This is a famous study I thought I should mention. It's called The Invasion from Mars. Uh, 1939, the movie director Orson Welles did a radio play War of the Worlds, and thousands of people panicked. They ran away from their homes because they thought that there really was an invasion from Mars. So the scholar Hadley Cantrell did a study uh, to try and determine what variables were at play. Why did some people panic? Others didn't. Uh, So just an example of the kind of research people were doing. Uh, But by the 1930s, you know, the field sort of began to grow in two different directions. Uh, both of which used good social science tools. Uh, one was a critical tradition, which is you know research for its own sake, just trying to understand why 
communication, how and why communication influences people. The others call administrative research, which is doing media research for business. Uh, like George Gallup is the most famous person, like the Gallup opinion poll. Um, so I want to just make this distinction because many people think media studies means uh, helping the media uh, make more Bollywood movies or make more money uh, through IPL or whatever. That is one part of it. But my own field is more in this tradition. You know, we're concerned with media as a, uh, as a, as a more, in a more civic manner, in a commercial manner. So Harold Laswell coined this um, sort of formula. I, I wanted to mention this because in a sense, we'll come back to it with uh, the study of Hindu phobia. Who says what and which channel to whom with what effect. And this is important because um, this sort of maps out all the different kinds of media research that are possible, right? Like, you know, who owns the media? What are the r- rules of uh, media ownership? Um, you know, content analysis, if you study the media content objectively, uh, what do you find? Technology issues, audience research, you know, who is watching? How do they interpret media? So he sort of, you know, gave a shape to the whole field. And then 60s, you know, uh, 50s and 60s, this approach sort of peaked and a new approach began in the 70s. And this is where my talk gets a little colorful. Uh, so this new um, approach that started in England in the 70s called Critical Cultural Studies um, focused on two in- issues which no one really had talked about before. One was meaning, right? How do media messages actually become meaningful to audiences? And second, power, the question of power. Uh, not just one-to-one influencing people or manipulating people, but historical power, which groups of people control society, um, you know, issues like that. So one example of semiotic analysis, um, I love this ad. It, it was in many magazines in India also in the 1990s. It's an ad for Smirnoff Vodka. But what is interesting is the, the imagery here. So I use this example you know, to teach my students how to do semiotic analysis. So I thought I'll do a quick run-through of this. So semiotics operates on this idea that everything is a sign, everything has meaning, and every sign can be broken down into two parts, a signifier and signified, right? And the signifier is the physical part of a sign, and the signified is the meanings we give to it, okay? So I'm sort of rushing through this very in a simple manner. Uh, And a very key idea here is that semiotics says the relationship between the signifier and signified is an arbitrary one, okay? So... There's no real logical reason why a cat should be called a cat and not a dog. It's just convention. So now I'm discovering there's actually strong arguments against that in Indian philosophy, like Ram Swaroop's work, I think has been is monumental and everyone needs to read that. Uh, but going with this framework for now, uh, the idea that most many meanings are based on codes which are arbitrary or a matter of convention, you can now apply it to this ad. So when I show my students this ad and say, come up with a slogan for it, inevitably, and this has been happening for 25 years, they come up with one word and that word is cool. So drink Smirnoff, be cool. That is sort of the message of the ad they see. Then we break it down into signifiers and signified. What are the signifiers, the physical parts? 
Okay, you have the layout, the color, the pictures, uh, the text, um, you know, these objects here, these heads, you know, the blue sky, um, you know, and then you have this particular head seen through the bottle, which has the bandana, glasses, earphones. And then we say, look, think about it. You know, we get the meaning in a flash. But when you analyze it, you realize it's actually this particular arrangement of objects, these signifiers, which invoked the signified called cool, coolness. And how did we know that? Somebody who doesn't know sunglasses or cool might look at it and say, oh no, this poor guy is sick or he's blind. You know, who knows? It's a different reading. It's possible. But we know that because we have the cultural competence to decode it in a certain way. And then we ask the question, where do these cultural competencies come from? They come from certain ideologies, certain worldviews. In this case, it's the worldview of tourism, the worldview of consumerism. And where did that come from ultimately? It came from the 500 years of European colonialism. Because when you think about it, this object actually was not meant for us to look in a magazine through a Smirnoff bottle and think cool, right? It was meant because the people who made it had different meanings for it. Maybe they were gods, maybe they were heroes, whatever else it was. But that story has vanished. Okay, and this is a case of the Easter Island. It's the case of the Egypt, uh, you know, temples and pyramids, the case of ancient Greece. Uh, those stories are gone. Those worldviews are gone. So what has been naturalized now is this new hegemonic condition of global modernity of empire. So this kind of analysis, if you, I'm giving you one quick example here. Uh, when you look at this image, this is the cover of Time magazine from 1947, supposed to be about India's partition. So you can see what has happened here. Now, this is supposed to be goddess Kali. And you see this utter desecration, you know, and appropriation and blame, right? It's, it's saying Hindus and Muslims are killing each other. But obviously, it's not a fair assessment when only one religion is being symbolized as the cause of violence here. That's one. But if you look at it from the semiotic point of view, you can see there's an indigenous view, the meanings or signifieds we bring to our symbols. And there's a colonial view. And what is happening in this image is a colonial view has been naturalized. So the more people do this, the more people um, take images out of context and you know, naturalize new ways of looking at it, the, you know, those end up becoming tropes. Those end up becoming even common sense. And those of us who still say, no, no, this is our goddess. We must have, we can be creative, but we must also be respectful. People will say, oh, no, you fundamentalist. So see how the power game turned against us. So it, this causes epistemic violence. Epistemic means how we know things causes material violence. Okay. So some recent examples of this, you might have seen this. Uh, Kamala Harris's niece tweeted this image uh, of her aunt in the shape of Goddess Durga. Then this coronavirus doctor tribute going on. And uh, this is actually a very subtle thing because most people might say, oh, this is nice. We must honor our doctors. But when you look at it in the history, broader history of iconoclasm, you know, why is the goddess actually taking, surrendering her authority, right? I mean, she could uh, be blessing the doctor. That would be wonderful. 
or you know or a patient can even honor the doctor as the uh, goddess durga that's also wonderful but this gesture rankles me you know i find that you know very very deliberate and offensive and then this one you might remember last year that horrible incident when a pregnant elephant was killed in kerala and this cartoon circulates saying ganesh ji is refusing you know puja so implication is hindus will are hypocrites they'll they'll do puja to elephant and give a bomb and you know you know that the, that crime was not committed by hindus so you know you can see this example again how you know science so many science proliferating um transforming how we look at the world um let me quickly go back to where the field of media studies has gone um so using the semiotic perspective a lot of audience research took place like racism in the media cosby show uh, in the 90s i wrote my first book becoming a global audience uh, this was about um, mtv in india um, again using the similar perspective of course those days i was still not really aware that there was a problem called hindu phobia um, um and i'll get to that in a minute so i want to just talk about where the field of media studies is today and why it resists hindu phobia or accepting this concept now cultural studies always believed that you know research should be about helping the world it should be about politics social change all these things and it's all race class and gender as the main uh concepts main axes along along which oppression and injustice was occurring in the world and wanted to fight that and then it sort of grew and grew and went in all directions and the problem now today is that on the one hand it has helped a lot of communities find a voice but the problem also is that it has you know virtually replaced the idea of truth with the primacy of identity um and that has led to all kinds of problems you know which you might call you know the left far left issues and so on but having said that here is specifically one point where there's the is an absurd dilemma which confronts hindus uh, or the study of hindophobia cultural studies believes that representation is the key issue in media studies okay so a lot of concepts like orientalism islamophobia uh, have become you know normal concepts people study these um you know these are very very famous books in the field so a muslim or an arab or a chinese or korean or japanese american can look at the media and say look that is yellow peril that is anti asian racism and it's accepted but when hindus do that it's not accepted at all because many of the studies of hinduism or hindus in general today in the field of media studies are like this they don't talk about hindu phobia or hindu misrepresentation they talk about hindutva or hindu nationalism they talk about hinduism basically as a danger to minorities and things like that um so each of these books is very important to understanding how this field which was supposed to be about you know race class and gender actually turned against people who are racial and class and gender minorities um another example of the dominant view of this article claiming that amachitra kada has no diversity and causes intolerance so this is a problem in the field now having said that media studies does talk about representation for people from india but it does so only under this label called south asia so famous documentary on the simpsons cartoon it says um you know uh, the problem with apu you know and it says you know 
there's racism against South Asians in America. But then they never talk about the fact that a part of the racism is also specifically um, Hindu-phobic. So this is the situation, you know, uh, Hindus are basically not permitted, by permitted, I mean by academic literature, academic consensus today, to just say that something is false about Hindus or is, you know, racist against Hindus, no. Uh, but, and the reason for that is this whole strange, you know, Hindu means Hindu nationalist, means white nationalist, etc. This this whole bizarre thing. Um, my view uh, is that this dichotomy is false. You know, this idea that the same human being cannot be okay if he says he's South Asian and not be you know, an oppressor if he says he's Hindu. That's a false dichotomy. Uh, and that regardless of whether one believes in that Hindu phobia is real or not, you can study Hindu representation objectively. You know, you can study so many parts of the media uh, world uh, to just try and understand how this uh, idea of Hinduism is being constructed over there. And the biggest reason I think why this problem exists is, you know, race, class, gender is accepted as fact today in social sciences, sexuality also. Race, class, gender, sexuality are supposed to be like the real important um, concepts by which we understand society. They have really sidestepped the question of religion. And religion is very important, particularly if you want to understand the global impact of colonialism. Um, If you want to understand that, we have to understand where the ideologies of colonialism and conquest came from. You know, why did Christopher Columbus come and slaughter the uh, indigenous people of the Americas or Pizarro in South America or Vasco da Gama in India or the Portuguese Inquisition or, you know, the, the British or the Mughals? Uh, all of this was driven by, uh, you know, intolerant religious ideology. And that is something the social sciences really, if they want to remain, or if they want to regain some credibility, you know, they have to start uh, opening up. And there are scholars pushing for it. You know, they're Native American scholars. There's a small handful of Hindu scholars who are doing it. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll do our best. Okay, so the last part, a media studies view of Hindu phobia. I'm presenting, you know, just a few ideas now from this chapter of mine, which uh, has just been published. Um, so this sort of engages with the literature and media studies, uh, what I've done in, uh, to kind of make the argument that, um, you know, this singular obsession with this idea of Hindu nationalism while denying Hindu phobia is wrong, um, that uh, media, media scholars need to actually objectively count and study Hindu representation. Uh, so this is a chapter, and um, so the, this is sort of the most the core of this chapter because in this chapter I proposed a research design for one kind of media research called uh, a content analysis because most other communities have done that for their representations, and I identify different levels at which we can analyze media content. So newspapers, movies, magazines, social media feeds, whatever else it is, uh, to try and objectively understand Hindu representation. First level is very objective, it's quantitative. Okay, so you, there are some accepted tools for studying bias, media bias, we can use those. The second level is colonial tropes. So India was a colonized country, so 
we have the right, moral and uh, historical right, to say that we are affected by colonial tropes. And other scholars, you know, from Africa, Latin America, have talked about these uh, stereotypes or tropes which Europeans invented, you know, to justify their conquest of the, you know, uh, people of Asia, Africa. Then there are more specific tropes about Hinduism, um, you know, which uh, can also be talked about. And these tropes are interesting because sometimes the tropes can be based on some partial truth or an, um, uh, an exaggeration of some reality in a very, very skewed manner. Sometimes the tropes could be completely misleading, like sati, you know, people just say sati for, uh, you know, if somebody says, you know, yeah, you know, media should be more honest about Hindus. And they say, oh, do you want to bring back sati? You know, that's insanity. So that's an example of just a weaponized trope. It has no connection. Then finally, dehumanization tactics. And this is something I'd like, you know, everyone to pay close attention to. Because what I'm finding is uh, in the last two, three years, you know, especially when I write that column in Medium and so on, um, what you're seeing is not just ordinary misrepresentation or laziness or, you know, paid media stuff. What we are seeing is weapons-grade dehumanization propaganda techniques being deployed against Hindus, and it is very scary. So let me uh, share this in some detail with some examples. Um, so this is from my chapter. I identified different things that you can look at over here. So this is one example. So for example, item two is the labeling of aggressors and victims uh, in a selective manner, okay? So you might have seen examples like this, right? Uh, where uh, the identity of somebody who does a crime is actually, um, you know, either mixed, is concealed, or in this case, it is outright factually misrepresented. Uh, so this was a case where, uh, you know, it wasn't a tantric who did this crime. Uh, I think it was, um, it, it was a person of another religion, but then they used the word tantric. And here, look at this picture. It says, fake priests and the trials of abuse. And when you click on that story, actually, it's a, it's a story about uh, abuse in the church, right? But they haven't shown a Christian priest. They show a Hindu priest. So there's a lot of this going on. And I know people notice this on Twitter and they share it. But what social scientists have to do is you know, start bringing it together, uh, start collating the data uh, so it's all there in one place. So these are just more ideas for coding. Then from seven onwards, we get into colonial tropes, which is uh, uh, themes that have been identified by other scholars as images that were used by the colonial powers to devalue um, the, in the colonial natives. So one example is this one, you know, treating Hindu debts as unimportant. So the number here sort of refers to my coding table, okay? So this is a very famous example. This is the comedian Trevor Noah. This was just after the Pulwama terror attack when 40 people died and there was, you know, a lot of tension about war. This guy makes a joke and he sings a song in Bangra style saying, time for you to die. He would not do that. I mean, if Israel, if 40 Israelis were killed or 40, you know, Palestinians were killed, 40 people of any religion or nationality were killed. No entertainer in America would laugh and make sing a song, but they do it because it has that dehumanization is now so widespread, you know. So another trope is blaming the victim, where um, you know Hindus are now 
depicted as oppressors. So I wanted to share this picture. This is from the anti-CAA protests last year. Um, so here's a Muslim lady saying Hindu India is Nazi Germany. And this is outright. I mean, when I show this to my students, people, they get it immediately. Like, you know, um, it's like if you look at the world in terms of identity and privilege, you know, you somebody, uh, a white guy doesn't go to India and then lecture them, you know, and doesn't get to call people of color Nazis, you know, which is what he's doing over here. So again, you know, this is what is going on. Then there are tropes which are very specific to depictions of Hindus right from the time of colonial missionary literature. For example, this hatred towards idols, or specifically our gods, why even use the word idols? You know, for them, it's idol hate. For us, it's, you know, attack on our gods. So movies like PK, Slumdog Millionaire, where uh, gods are associated with violence or with uh, toilets in this case, you know, this is sheer classic colonial religious hatred. Another common theme is this idea that, you know, a, a religion is stagnant and somehow, you know, needs to be reformed. So this is a progressive magazine and these guys are just openly saying it, you know, like just convert. You know. uh, this is probably the most widespread trope and um, that is, you know, this kind of hatred towards priests, sadhus, brahmins, religious people. I showed this example in my class, the saffron terrorism. And I asked my students, and the media students are very savvy at analyzing these things. So I said, what exactly is the terror part of it? And they said, there's nothing. There's a, you know, they said, are these Buddhist monks who are meditating? That's what my students kind of saw this as. Because, you know, for to an average person, this image is very peaceful, right? It's just a bunch of, um, you know, spiritual people who are sitting uh, and meditating. But look at this phrase, saffron terrorism. That's how they're normalizing. You know, this is propaganda. And this fat, you know, priest over here is from a Telugu movie on Adi Shankara. It was completely unnecessary. But this has just become like a movie industry masala item now. Uh, important work, you know, Vishwad Luri's book, The Nay Science, uh, where he sort of shows where this uh, priest hatred or Brahmin hatred or sadhu hatred, all of these came from to India. It was a German missionaries to projecting their anti-Semitism and anti-Catholicism, you know, onto uh, Hindus, you know, uh, two, three centuries ago. Uh, so this is a very common trope as well. So, yeah, many more tropes I've identified. I'll put my chapter up on academia in a few days. You know, there's a lot of these anti, um, sorry, not just anti-Hindu themes, but propaganda techniques that are also at play. So one of these is number 24, you know, scaring people about everyday Hindu symbols. You know, the New York Times had an article about how the sari had become a symbol of Hindu nationalism. Scroll had an article about how Rasam was Brahmanism, you know. So they're doing a lot of this kind of stuff as well, you know. And this is, you know, demonization, nothing less. So here's an article about Steve Bannon, a former Trump ally. And they pick up picture of him with a tilak on his face, you know, all the time trying to hit this idea that, you know, white supremacy is Hinduism and, you know, just cheap stuff. And this is very disturbing. A classic dehumanization technique, you know, which was done by Hitler's Nazis. It, it was the Americans did it to the Japanese in World War II. It is the use of, you know, using images of dirt and filth to uh, smear somebody they don't like. So this is from Slumdog Millionaire. It's a horrible scene in the movie. I'll move away from it. It's quite yucky. 
Now they're doing this on purpose, right? They want to associate India with sewage. And this is another classic propaganda technique uh, depicting uh, people of a minority group, racial or religious minorities, uh, as animals. And this is The Guardian, which is supposed to be a progressive, anti-racist newspaper. And they showed Preeti Patel, uh, you know, who's a Hindu uh, minister in England, in, in like this monster. And they get away with it because somehow these are, you know, white so-called liberals in London depicting a Hindu woman of color like this. And they get away with it because they're so sure that, you know, they are liberals and anti-racist and Preeti is in the conservative party. So it's okay. So anyway, so this is a level of madness that's going on. Um, and some of you might remember this. Uh, this was uh, a correspondent for, uh, or a reporter for NPR, the National Public Radio, who tweeted this. And there was a huge storm about it. Um, you know, she'd resigned, but, you know, NPR never even took down her articles or put a note saying that her objectivity might have been compromised. So, but this cow piss trope is, again, a classic dehumanization technique. Uh, so I sort of offer a definition of Hinduphobia for media researchers, basically from everything I'm looking at, and I'm seeing it not just as stereotyping, but as a form of propaganda. Um, and uh, I'll just move on quickly so I can wrap up in the next uh, three or four minutes, then we can take some questions. Uh, so broadly, you know, since I promised to lay out some ideas for a media studies view of Hinduphobia, uh, I'm going back to that Laswell's model, which is sort of the template for my field. So who says what, to whom, with what effect? Really, there's so many research topics that could be explored by scholars, uh, you know, like institutions. Who owns mass media? You know, who's got money in, you know, Huffington Post? You know, is it Omidya Group? You know, what about Al Jazeera? What about The Economist? Where did their wealth come from? What are their business interests in India? Uh, what are their interests in, say, uh, defanging the cow protection movement? Uh, who are their advertisers? Is McDonald's advertising for them? Is that why they want to uh, demonize Gorakshaks? Who knows? There's so many questions you can explore at the institutional level. Then at the level of text, you can do the kind of coding content analysis I just showed, you know, looking at data objectively. And then this is challenging, but it's great fun. Uh, doing audience research, actually interviewing people, doing surveys, doing ethnographies of violence. Uh, I mean, when riots take place in Bengal or in uh, Kashmir or you know Bangladesh or Pakistan, I, I wish we had you know trained researchers who had the grants uh, to go and actually find out the role of media in whipping up hate. I know Swati Goel Sharma does a great job. Um, you know, some of her articles are just fantastic. But apart from her, I don't really know. Anyone else, you know, collating this kind of research and work. Uh, so a lot of work that needs to be done. So uh, just by way of conclusion, why we must act, what we can do. Uh, the important thing I would like us to remember, media are powerful. Most of us view media only as consumers. So we tend to think that it's just there to entertain us. And sometimes we may get annoyed with it. Uh, and um, looking forward to your questions. Uh, I'll, I'll just wrap up in two more minutes. Thank you. Uh, so remember that most researchers of media do believe that media is powerful and media are concerned about this U.S. military industrial communications complex because the media is not just 
about business. It's about actually spreading the American empire now. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really out of control. They're actually manufacturing excuses to go to war the way they did with Iraq 20 years ago. Um, and then research has found that long-term media does have effect on perceptions. It's called cultivation research. And then there's a lot of uh, scholarship on representation, dehumanization, genocide, uh, all these things. So I thought I'd leave us with these examples. Representations are important. Uh, somebody who's beaten up for wearing a thread in Tamil Nadu, the sadhus who were murdered in Palgar while the police just you know, let it happen. Um, that's in our time. But if you look at it historically, 1971, Bangladesh, you know, till a couple of years ago, I never knew that the Bangladesh massacres were about, were that the victims were largely Hindu. You know, that's how much it's been covered up. And the U.S. government, Nixon, allowed it to happen. He hated, you know, Hindus like Churchill and many others. British colonialism, partition, Hampi, Ayodhya, Kashi. I mean, the list goes on. And at the core of it always is a cultural idea, is a representation idea, communication idea, right? This word kafir or heathen, you know, thousands of years of war and conquest. And of course, resistance from us too. Let's not forget that. So resistance continued. That was a perfect transition. The, my last few points. One, please consider supporting research. Uh, you know, if you have institutional um, uh, support, you know, try and see how, you know, proper research centers can be set up for anti-Hinduphobia work, not just, you know, studying uh, Sanskrit and Vedas. And I mean, that is important too, but that's, that's beautiful. We all need that. But that won't solve the problem of fighting Hinduphobia. You know, learning Vedas and doing Vedic scholarship will help, you know, put off some of the Doniger-Pollock effect. And that is important. But we also need active social science work and activism. Second, uh, social media, I know many of you are active on social media. Remember, social media is not a revolutionary tool. It's a tool that these big corporations like Apple, Google, Facebook uh, are using to try and control our energy, narrow our imagination. Look at how easily they you know, block or uh, you know, just take away accounts like True Indology, for example. I mean, there's so much scholarship there and they just do that with impunity. So remember that we have to get off social media. Social media leads to revolutions only if people actually gather in Tahir Square or Rajpath or, you know, outside the Netflix office or wherever else it is. There has to be real life action. And one of the, the only thing I've written in caps lock here, and this really concerns me. I see a lot of Hindus boasting on social media that we are Hindus. We are, you know, we don't do protests. My God, that is sheer cowardice. No one admires you for that, you know, Please don't fall for that. Uh, and also help the few researchers who are doing this work, uh, you know, keep our work separate from, you know, the ideologues and IT cells and, you know, the noisemakers, uh, you know, let them do their thing. Let us do our thing. Uh, one more thing, please set a good example to your children. Those of your parents uh, don't indulge in movies which are desecrating or insulting Hinduism. Talk about it, but in a civil manner. Right? If you get into rants about religions, most children today won't like it. So learn to talk about it professionally as uh, not so much as a left versus right or Hindu-Muslim issue, but just as a racism versus fair representation issue. Um, so train your children to fight propaganda. Uh, these are just some issues for uh, 
media scholars, you know, ultimately, you know, the good thing about Hindu philosophy, Hindu thought, as I'm discovering is, you know, we don't just have to get into media studies to fit into their categories. Ultimately, you know, getting recognition of the Hindu phobia idea, fighting Hindu phobia is step one. Step two is epistemic decolonization, ultimately revolutionizing the theory of communication. I mean, the more I learn about the philosophy of Sanskrit and Shabda and, you know, uh, ideas like Rasa and Bhava, I mean, it's mind-blowing. I mean, media studies will never be the same again if these ideas really, you know, uh, took root in our hearts and lives. So finally, yeah, just some resources, further reading. There's a great movie on propaganda. It's on Amazon. Uh, so all of these links, I'll, I'll request uh, Sangam Talks to share. So that's my talk. Uh, looking forward to a few questions. Thank you for listening. I'm very thankful for attending this, especially as a journalism student. I see quite a lot of uh, uh, soft Hindophobia even in my own college and all. So first thing I want to say is uh, one thing, sir, I would like to highlight is this depiction of Hindu women in uh, media, sir, especially Hindophobic media uh, and especially Netflix platforms and all. They depict uh, Hindu uh, women as as like um, against uh, the culture itself and uh, who are uh, very much deprived of uh, love and who are against uh, Hindu men and all and who are attention starved and who seek it from uh, other men from other religions that is I feel that that's also very demeaning like recently there was a huge controversy when one woman who was like who made us post for smashing the stereotypes and patriarchy on women's day she cut off her sari but on another day she wore the nun's dress with pride without cutting it off that is also there and then there's this recent cartoon of a, a muslim kid who beat a sadhu in yoga with the help of a genie and all and then there's also another thing i've noticed is that some kashmiri pandits on social media who talk about their uh, sufferings they are labeled as oh you're playing your victim card go away ha 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 and all that so and another thing which i have personally faced is when i posted on instagram against uh, saif ali khan's uh, statement on uh, ravana just uh, ravana's role justifying sita my own classmates and friends were like oh you need to broaden your perspective there's another side to it you do realize that ramayana is just ancient propaganda tool for justifying hinduism right ravana is also really amazing like i try to answer them as best as i can but um, uh, sir what is your state on that first of all thank you for uh, speaking and for sharing that you're a journalism student i'm so glad that uh, in spite of this very hostile worldview uh, and i i you know you know one of the reasons i said things are not getting better is because media studies was not as viciously and extremely anti hindu 20 years ago uh, i think it was still a little more accommodating to other views and today from everything i've seen from the few talks i've given in mass comm schools in india and from uh, what i see um, you you are uh, definitely facing a tremendous challenge intellectually uh, i think the important thing is uh, you know trying to uh, look approach it from the point of view of your um, your your profession right 
as a journalist, as a as, as somebody who believes the media can be a force for good, uh, who believes in truthful representation, uh, almost everything that is going on is absolutely toxic and hostile. You know that. Uh, but pace yourself out is is what I can say because particularly you know when people are not willing to listen, uh, it can be very very draining. So you know, be good spirited, but don't fall into the trap of making it a political defense. Um, because that becomes very easy for people to discredit because then you're carrying a lot of baggage, you know, and, uh, you know, I would, you know, write about RSS or BJP to the extent, you know, and I did the first two, three years, 2014, 15, you know, to the extent that I felt the record had to be corrected. But after that, you know, I'm not in this to be co-opted by any political party or, you know, become their cheerleader because that's, unfortunately, that's the nature of the political machine. That's what they want. So I think it's as long as you're clear in your mind that your duties as a journalist, as a citizen, as a human being, as a as a uh, you know person who respects the idea of dharma, all these things, and I think your words and your career can be very powerful uh, because just looking at all the examples you've given me, you're observing all the right things. And you know, please do uh, connect with me on Instagram or Twitter, and I'll follow you back. And I'd love to stay in touch because you're a journalism student. You know, again, uh, being in the U.S., I have seen a, a huge shift in terms of the p- perception of what Hinduism is. And I think Hindu phobia has uh, gained, uh, I think, a little more traction in the recent uh, past. Uh, and I, I, you know, I view it as an organized onslaught by mainly left-leaning and unfortunately Indian origin academics in some Ivy League institutions. Uh, to the extent that you have even seen fake news being propagated by New York Times, etc., especially about the Delhi diets. And not only that, it's being lapped up by the Hindu, uh, I would say, uh, population within the US, if not the West. You know, for example, there was a students' union or a Hindu students' union condemning Holi, uh, you know, uh, based on a fake news narrative by some of these left leaning publications. Uh, so we have already seen a pattern of, you know, Western induced self-loathing in, in Hindus at uh, epidemic proportions in India and within expatriate communities. But what I, uh, you know, as an individual living uh, overseas of, of Indian origin, what I see is that is there's a lack of a concerted counter narrative, right, uh, to hold these people accountable. For example, you know, if, if a publication is making fake news that's Hindu phobic, can they be even sued about it? Because there's no... Uh, basis in truth about what they're doing. But I just feel that, you know, there has to be a concerted counter narrative. And you can find very few people involved in that purpose. I mean, Raji Malhotra is is doing some of the work and there are, you know, just a handful of other people. So I just wanted to know your thoughts uh, about this and how best to tackle uh, this on a, you know, I would say community scale. So, yeah, I, I don't know if you uh, were here for the first uh, part of the talk when I talked about what I call the advocacy Maya Sabha. Uh, so, uh, you know, when the recording is up, I would urge you to, you know, pay close attention to that and also to my uh, uh, ebook, Writing Across a Cracked World, uh, you know, particularly if uh, you're active on social media, that may be useful for you. See, I think the problem is, you know, you know, this uh, advocacy or, you know, the community uh, uh, concerns. Um, first of all, it's very small, very limited resources. Um that's a reality. But then after 20, 30 years of people making, uh, getting upset about it and nothing changing, uh, one, of course, yeah, people are very deeply entrenched uh, on the other side post-2014. It was, uh, you know, I think 2014 to 15, there was a window of opportunity to make the, demograph- the democracy dividend 
uh, work. But then uh, for whatever reason, uh, either inaction, ineptitude or political calculation, the new government in India really did not get into the game. Uh, and I saw that whole thing slipping away very close. Uh, so what has happened is whatever, you know, it's like, you know, let's say Hindu phobia was at, you know, eight out of 10 scale of uh, absurdity till 2014. Uh, I mean, till 2014, you know, one subtle difference you'll notice is they were largely demonizing, you know, Modi ji and, you know, BJP and Hindu nationalism. Post 2015, all bets are off, you know. It's like anything Hindu, the sari, rasam, bindi, you know, just go after anything. And it's working. And there are customers for it, as you said, you know, a lot of students in American campuses stand up. So uh, in terms of what can be done, why aren't people suing? Why aren't people doing anything? Again, like I said, you know, uh, it'll start happening only if we, you know, get off social media and get into the real world. And also, if you want to actually, if somebody wants to put the money and, you know, sue somebody, where is the data, right? I mean, where, who are the uh, academics who are going to come and speak up? There's just uh, very, very few of us. If we had the resources and support, we could be doing a lot more work. But ultimately, there has to be that academic activist, uh, you know, uh, trust to the community. And most of what is passing for advocacy is just eyewash today. I think that's the harsh truth. You were talking about the little model. You had a little model up uh, about uh, acad academic research being followed by activism. Uh, today, we see a lot of activism. Uh, personally, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm a student at the University of Toronto. And, uh, you know, I try to, you know, I try to just inform my fellow, my friends, my, uh, you know, you know, my classmates just about, um, you know, issues that, you know, Hindu issues. But uh, the question that, you know, I usually get is, you know, where's the proof? You know, where is, um, do you have any articles to point to? Do you have any, um, you know, sort like, uh, like reputed sources to point to? And that's when, you know, um, I have nothing. Uh, because most of uh, most of the information we get is from, you know, through family members, through, you know, friends uh, or people who are actually experiencing it in uh, real life um so how do we so how do we go about building this um you know this academic research um you know because activism just uh just as we're, as we're doing it now you know it's not good enough because you know you'll always be you'll always be seen just as you know a nationalist or something because that's what that's how we get labeled as so how would you say we should go about you know creating that academic research because, you know, we don't have a voice in academia, as you said, uh, you know, I personally have, uh, you know, faced, had to deal with the professors who are like openly Hindu phobic. What, what was your major, if I may ask? Um, my major is the political science and religion. Oh, wow. Okay. There you have it. Well, I'd, I'd love to connect with you because, uh, you know, I, I well, first of all, thank you and uh, for uh, braving it and coming it into this field and not going into STEM. We've lost too many people to STEM who are not in a position to fight the good fight. So, but um, yeah, being being in the social sciences right now is very very uh, challenging. Uh, but I'm sure um, you know uh, you you know you with with single-minded devotion to truth. And I mean, we are lucky we have so many gods and goddesses 
for learning to help us uh, in the, in the long haul you know uh, it it will it will uh, work out in the sense you will be able to speak the truth and um, there is a lot of learning we all have to do you know i mean uh, i feel like you know it's only the last 3 4 years that you know i've discovered the work of say sitaram goel and ram swaroop uh, there's so much more that i've just started to learn now so uh we're all in this business of learning together whether you know regardless of where we are in our careers uh so to uh, to give you a quick uh, and practical response yes please to connect with me on email twitter facebook etc i'd love to stay in touch um because there is literally just a handful of uh social scientists um you know who are you know trying to talk about these issues and we do have a big challenge because on the one hand we have the uh academic establishment which is at this you know ignoring us or you know it's become even more entrenched in its extremities and you're probably seeing a lot more of it uh and on the other hand we have a community which is uh been stuck on twitter so i mean i wanted to share one small example uh with your question and the uh, question uh, from the gentleman who came earlier you know what has happened is one of the reasons why this any kind of uh, criti- criticism uh, or counter hinduphobia work is getting so easily discredited is because the political baggage comes on very quickly and many of us you know don't realize that you know we are ending up having to fight a fight for one political party or a particular personality instead of a fight for truth a fight for you know 1 billion people our ancestors our lands what's left of them and i'm not saying you know it's up to each of us you know how much we want to invest emotionally politically in a political party that's up to us but right now there's this maya that everybody in the community seems to be in that because there's a bjp government or there's a hindu friendly government somehow everything is working out or we just have to push them and they'll do th- no i'll give you a small example you know 2 years ago when uh, i believe it was when you know the desecration of vyasaraya's uh, brindavan took place in navabrindavan in hampi it was a terrifying event um um i you know I, i wrote a small open letter to prime minister modi and said you know he should speak out against anti hindu violence and i mean obviously i know he's not going to see it or do anything but i just wanted this statement made that this is a reality now unfortunately what has happened is some of the very same hindu advocacy groups that you have in the us have they never go and speak out when there's violence against hindus in india right i always wanted like last week there was a huge traffic jam in san francisco because you know the farmers from california uh came they clogged the bay bridge they went around surrounded the indian consulate and they did their protests it made the news and you know next thing you know all the news channels in san francisco are saying what well, my god what's happening to farmers in india why you know why are farmers protesting in california so when people show up it's noticed so i've asked these hindu groups very often when a sadhu is killed in india why doesn't any hindu advocacy group stand out to the indian consulate and just hold a sign saying we are concerned about the lives of hindu sadhus in india they don't do it because you know they have this idea i think one is the broader social status idea we don't do protest and more specifically let's be honest many of these hindu groups don't do it because they you know they they won't do it when 
a government they like is in power in india so this has to be about something bigger than you know political calculations so i think you know a hindu advocacy group in america would gain more credibility if you know it actually stood up for hindus even in india regardless of which party is in power so anyway just wanted to you know get that off my shoulders but uh, yeah thank you i'm glad you're in political science and i look forward to being in touch i mean there's a lot that can be done but uh, uh, i would like to ask professor juluri uh, what is it in hindu society that actually uh, you know doesn't you know make ordinary people take action at their individual level like for instance you know there are papers that are hindu phobic you could easily not buy that paper but even in devout hindu homes you know that is a, a sort of morning ritual in addition to all other rituals i mean why is it that these simple things you know voting with your wallet doesn't occur in hindu society i mean all these movies and medias that we uh, you know are talking about are actually getting a lot of revenue from hindus modern mm-hmm. hindus so uh, no that's uh, i think um, you know some of the answers to that might be you know religious in nature you know the people who are starting to speculate about this i know there's people who believe that because we are not a quote unquote congregational faith we somehow don't have this sense of uh, how to act uh, i think we can also look at it sociologically um, and i think what has happened is um, th- there is you know some sort of an intergenerational collapse that has taken place where you know the way there's a reason i think hindus became sort of passive and just just and all that because in a way it, it helped us survive you know and this is ashish nandi's famous thesis that you know that the psychological survival strategy for hindus in india uh was to refrain from definition to sort of be ambiguous you know kind of uh, say yeah yeah whatever to whoever came along i'm simplifying it so it worked maybe you know at the peak of colonialism and all these pressures were there on on our religion you know to convert and you know either convert or die somehow people you know sorted it out but then i think after independence from one generation to the other this just i just attitude basically descended you know into just absolute passivity and uh, you know a kind of cowardice even and i mean the excuses are there you know like you have people say oh we were all you know just middle class you know we can't afford to protest you know we have to get jobs so i mean all that was there till the now post 90s you have many hindus who are earning more than their parents uh, who are certainly economically better off than they were in say nehru socialist india and so on uh, but again now the argument is um, you know we don't we're not really going to take any action because it's not for us you know we are going to change things through uh our achievements and education and make things like that and i think to answer your question specifically about even not doing small things uh i i think that's a very intriguing uh, sociological uh, you know dilemma that we have uh, but um, uh, uh you know we we just have to keep m- making it okay for people to resist this problem to name it and shame it because you know again conrad else just talked about it you know in the 1990s when the indigenous uprising you know was like really peaking in the us and everywhere the ayodhya issue really was along the same lines but we have completely lacked the ability to perceive it 
as an indigenous uprising. And we've thrown all our eggs into this, you know, right-wing, you know, nationalist paradigm or whatever. And that has really, really become baggage we can't handle today. So I've sort of thrown three, four ideas about, uh, because obviously I don't have a simple lucid answer about why we continue to, you know, feed these monsters. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think the important thing is to keep talking about it, one, and talk about it outside this right-wing or political party paradigm. And then hopefully more people, you know, will understand, you know, uh, that it's very, very trendy. Fighting Hindu phobia is as trendy as fighting racism in America today. You know, I think that's what people need to recognize. We know that some of these, uh, okay, most of us, right, by the time we complete our education and get into jobs and realize that there is such Hindu phobia and all this, we are almost nearing 30. So it's a shock to most of us. And then... Uh, we do see that these attacks on Hindus, I mean, not literally, but uh, so these do come from Islamist, Christian organizations, Marxist organizations. So when we start um, posting on social media, so there's a lot of dilemma that is this going to hurt someone because some of them are, are our colleagues or our friends mm-hmm. with whom we work. So there's a little dilemma on this. So, I mean, I think you did answer it partly. Yeah, when in your talk that you just concentrate on the topic and and not on any organization or something like that right uh, is this something that you would can you elaborate on this how to actually broach very difficult issues when we are living and working in a very diverse world right i mean and that's a very practical question and i'm glad you asked that because i mean let's face it uh you know we are working in, in, in offices and, and studying in classrooms where, you know, our colleagues and friends are from different communities and so on. And, you know, it's, it's very awkward because they have never heard criticism of what they might see as criticism of their faith, right? Or the moment they hear it, they're conditioned to think, oh, you must be, uh, you know, a Hindu nationalist, far right, uh, you know, Modi supporter or whatever. You know, so they're completely primed that way. So we are already in an uphill task. But let me share a couple of examples. You know, when I was in grad school in, in the 1990s, uh, you know, I studied in the Midwest. Later, I went to UMass, which is a little more, you know, Marxist, left-leaning, etc. But in both places, I could see people were pushing these topics, you know, whether it was the feminists or, you know, the gay rights activists, and that had just really picked up only in the 1990s, you know, the whole LGBT movement and so on. And, and of course, you know, African-Americans. So whenever they brought up these issues, there would be awkwardness, you know, people would be awkward about it and, you know, things like that. Uh, But then eventually people get used. And sometimes, of course, it can be excessive, you know, people, you know, um, it, now, today, now it's become a circus, frankly, you know, this kind of criticism. Uh, but uh, if you think it's important, you know, then you should, you know, figure out a way to do it. And maybe my book will give you some ideas, you know, just in terms of things like language, you know, because we don't own language anymore. You know, we're just borrowing words. That's why we use words like advocacy or right wing or nationalist and, you know, much more accurate words like indigenous, you know, or a word like, you know, liberal. I mean, we are more liberal than, frankly, even the, the liberals of America, you know. Most so-called liberals in the West are just right-wingers, you know, you can see that. So all these challenges are there. So maybe 
one understanding there will be discomfort when these issues are being pushed and it is challenging now because also post 2014 right this when you know this idea that you know there's a hindu government in power is going to make everyone say like oh but you know hindus are a majority or 80% plus there's a hindu nationalist government in power what are you guys complaining about so the, those challenges are there but you know we have to slowly get people used to the idea that you know these can be talked about you know you know people talk about racism to white people so we you know we can eventually talk about these you know uh, the history of you know christianity and you know islam whatever slowly and very very carefully that's important word briefly describe about like uh, what are the positive things as an individual can uh, take like uh, when we see a uh, lot of uh, issues with the uh, hinduophobic content which can be uh, seen on ott and other movies so as an individual what are our uh, what should be our roles and how we can counter those things i think the most important thing you can do is just be more critical media consumers um you know it's not just you know the ra- anti racism anti sexism stuff there is a lot of social investment in america on media and parenting i gave a link to this organization called uh, commonsensemedia.org and that is something we've not quite done in india you know and uh, so you know um when you talk about media be open minded in the sense that criticize the hindophobic content uh, objectively calmly but also you know criticize other things there's a million other bad things the media are doing you know they're they're spreading misogyny and like the gems of bollywood twitter handle you know they're picking up so much not just hindophobia but they're picking up you know horrible uh, and you know misogynistic content from bollywood you know very very bad stuff about women so you know call out those issues also so that people recognize that what you're fighting is not just you know misrepresentation of your people but you're fighting the misrepresentation of truth and decency itself right and that is really where i think as hindus following this very universalist outlook like sanatan dharma we really can do a good job because i think in a sense it comes naturally for us you know being tribal is very difficult for us that's why we are struggling frankly you know organizing our collective strength you know uh, trying to find unity then we lack all of this doesn't work but what seems to come naturally for us is just talking about anything that's you know universally good for everybody so i think as a human being maybe the best thing you could do as an individual is cultivate a sense of discernment in media you know always remember that media uh, isn't existing just to flat uh, please us it's there because people have put in money to either you know make us buy stuff or you know manipulate our behavior turn us into you know uh, slaves and consumers um and um, so i think the way you could um, talk about it is just by talking about many many things that are adharmic in a sense in 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 the content of media too and but judge the context you know don't use a word like adharmic if you are in you know in a secular environment you know uh, use more modern terms for adharma like you know like misogynistic or racist or consumerist you know so i know it's uh, very broad advice but i i think the if you have a good intent and clarity on how you use your words uh, even your individual uh effort will certainly you know count for something well how do i keep sane um, you know looking at so much hindu phobia in academia and in the media um i also try to learn so um a few years ago i started uh, learning about the history of 
um, I guess really the history of nature, that was a topic that interested me. And I started a trilogy called the Kishkindha Chronicles, uh, which is uh, a fictional retelling of the adventures of Hanuman set in prehistoric India. Uh, part one, Saraswati's intelligence uh, uh, sets up the story. This came out a couple of years ago. And earlier this year, I finally managed to publish part two. It's called The Firekeepers of Jwalapuram. Uh, Jwalapuram is a real place in Karnul, Andhra Pradesh, where a very important research discovery was made by the archaeologist Professor Ravi Kori Setar um, about the existence of uh, uh, survivors from the Toba volcano explosion in 70,000 BC. Uh, but of course, my story is more about Hanuman and Subriva and Wali and their family politics and this huge invasion of a violent race. Uh, so it's sort of a prehistoric planet of the apes, but with Hanuman story, very respectful. Uh, it is our gods I'm taking some creative liberties with, so I don't uh, disrespect them at all. Uh, but yeah, you know, if, if uh, you know, uh, you like reading fiction, uh, I would request you to, you know, check out, uh, you know, both these novels of mine and let me know what you think so that I can also finish writing part three very soon.